This is The Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. In this episode, we're digging deep into the implant scandal. Has the science completely gone out the window with the approval of some medical devices? That's a bit later. But first, we decided to bring our newest recruit into the studio. It's Raghav Ayer. He's a writer for Wild Health, and that's the digital arm of the Medical Republic. Thanks, Francine. It's great to be here. We seem to make a bit of a habit of dragging people straight into the studio on one of their first few days in the office and onto a microphone. It's uh, baptism by fire. Pretty much, yep. Uh, But what do you have for us today? I hear that you've been doing some research. Yeah, I have been doing some research. I've been researching fictional diseases um, for fun. (laughs) Is that what you do in your spare time? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Uh, that's pretty awesome. So these are the diseases in movies and books that aren't real, right? Yeah, yeah. So anything to do with fantasy and cyberpunk and all those weird genres you read about. But I hear the weirdest part is that there are people out there that think that they are real. So there's very... Um, oh, they're real. real. Yeah, yeah. They're <laughs> definitely real. <laughs> there's very um, concerning Google searches out there um, of people searching for symptoms of these fictional diseases and... I mean, that's a whole other concerning problem on its own. (laughs) Um, So you've got a list of your favorites, is that right? Yeah, so I've got my top three. Um, I think the best place to start would be a Game of Thrones disease, like, because I'm sure there are a lot of our GP listeners who are Game of Thrones fans. I want to talk about grayscale. So pretty much grayscale is a fatal disease, which makes like the surface of your skin harden and calcify. So it, in its early stages, the patient's skin is thin and brittle, but over time it has the ability to leave one's flesh dark and dead. And it's pretty, pretty, it's pretty awful, actually. Is that what happened with the Mad King? No, that was, a, that was just, I think that was some form of... That was genetics. That was genetics. Definitely genetics. That was a non-fictional disease. Targaryen inbreeding. (laughs) I think my favourite thing is the detail in these fictional diseases, how we can actually ask about how it progresses. Oh, and then what happens next? (laughs) What's the next set of symptoms? Um, But how does one get grayscale in the first place? There are two ways you get grayscale. So the first is if you are touched by someone who has grayscale. And the second is if you touch something that has been touched by a person who has grayscale. That's pretty infectious. Yeah, it's very infectious. Highly communicable. So stay away from the realms of Essos and you'd be all right. But what's the second disease that you have? Well, this one is a traditional folk sort of fantasy disease called lycanthropy, but it's more commonly known as werewolfery. So if you're a Harry Potter fan and you... Remember characters like Remus Lupin? They were affected by this disease. So werewolfery, for those who don't know, is a condition where you turn into a werewolf when you are exposed to a full moon. Yeah, happens to me all the time. (laughs) So what makes werewolves so interesting? I think what makes werewolves interesting is that they are slaves to the whim of their disease. They're transformed into this being that... And they just don't know who they are, who they were. They would kill their best friend or lover if they had the chance. The worst part is that the next day when they resume their former self, they can remember everything they did as a werewolf. 
which could have some pretty profound psychological effects. But it is pretty predictable. It's every full moon, so... (laughs) (laughs) So get it together, people! (laughs) No, it means that you can take preventative measures, which is what Lupin and his friends do. That's true. Snape, he gets Snape to make some potions for him. Mm, I can see a lot of parallels with some real diseases. Exactly. (laughs) Speaking of which, when you were just talking about um, Professor Lupin, it's very interesting because... The reason why Lupin is chosen is because people used to think that werewolfery was a real disease, and it's actually what we modernly know as lupus, um, which means wolf in Latin. So in the 13th century, people who used to have the facial lesions, which now we know characterises the autoimmune disease lupus, they were thought to have been wolf people or werewolves, um, which is why the disease is called lupus still to this day and also why J.K. Rowling chose lupin as a play on words. She was so smart. Um, And so what's the last disease? Well, the last disease is for those cyberpunk cyberpunk and sci-fi fans. If you've watched Blade Runner, you'd be familiar with the character of J.F. Sebastian and he experiences something called Methuselah syndrome. And that's where you age prematurely. Oh, so that's very similar to a real disease called progenia, which is extremely rare. It's a genetic disorder uh, which has symptoms of premature aging. Hmm, there you go. Oh, Um, I was just going to say that I think it's a pretty darkly ironic name for a disease because Methuselah syndrome like speeds up your aging process. It's like the character of Methuselah was the person in the Bible who lived the longest. I think he was aged 969 when he finally passed away. It's, I think it's pretty qu- good age. Yeah, it's not a bad age to live. It's good age care back then. <laughs> <laughs> they should have put that in the Bible. <laughs> Here are our treatments. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, like the imminence of death is just a bit sooner than later, but that was just my own reflection on it. <laughs> oh, so it's ironic because these people prematurely age, whereas... And they'll die sooner, whereas Methuselah lived, lived a long time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having it's me. It's been great. This is to have our first fantasy section. Awesome. So up next, we've got our hot topic with Dr. Justin Coleman, a GP from Queensland. Next time you're down at your local pub, ask the person sitting next to you why doctors order tests. They'll say, to find out what's wrong with you. In that way, every imaginable medical test passes the pub test. Investigations tell doctors how to fix you. The more you do, the more you'll be fixed. This understandable assumption fuels not only pathology and radiology, but also commercial genetic tests, alternative practitioner tests, and more recently, wearable technology. If a single measurement is good, a continuous readout from your watch or phone must surely upsize your health to the next level. We doctors know it's not so simple, which is why we don't order every test on every one. Just because we can doesn't mean we do, even if the patient or their lawyer might expect us to. Test results, like most things involving human beings, are nuanced. The results are not the truth. They merely guide us a little closer to it. Reverend Thomas Bayes was a philosopher and statistician back in the days when you could be both and still hold down a paying job. To badly paraphrase Bayes' theorem, the meaning of a test result depends enormously on how likely that outcome was before you even did the test. The chance of the result being correct, i.e. revealing the truth, depends on the pre-test probability. 
A positive result means a lot in someone we were half thinking might have the disease in question, but it means pretty much bugger all as an incidental finding. GPs read UEC, LFT, FBE results many times a day, and if we seriously chased down every single result in red, we'd never get home. Are we negligent? No, we're correctly dismissing them based on the low pretest odds. Tests don't prove or disprove, they shift the odds. On a sliding scale from 0 to 100%, the result slides the pointer up or down a few notches. Believing that the pointer will ever touch 0 or 100 is the fantasy of blokes at the pub and media shock jocks who should know better. So when is a test useful? Well, a test is worth doing if our threshold for action lies somewhere within the middle range of where the pointer is likely to slide. If the disease is very unlikely, even a positive result won't slide the pointer above the threshold for doing something. That's why most tests fail when it comes to screening the entire population. They're just not worth doing on well people. If the pretest odds are so high that a negative result won't reassure us, don't bother even ordering the test. The threshold has already been crossed. Just get on with the treatment. Any dummy can read a positive test result and falsely claim it gives an absolute answer. Learning to diagnose takes training in accurately assessing each person's pretest odds. That's what we're actually doing when we use history, examination, and knowledge of disease epidemiology and patient context. That context is specific to general practice, which is why urologists are more fond of PSA tests than GPs, and emergency departments order the whole alphabet on someone who's really sick, whereas GPs can afford to order tests in series, waiting to see what happens before moving on to the next batch. So next time you're at the pub, percuss the belly of the bloke sitting next to you. If the percussion is dull, it's not a positive test for ascites. It's just beer. So you know that large plastic netting that's used in supermarkets to bag oranges? Yeah, the one that you get fruit in usually. I'm imagining what, like, mandarins come in. Well, I only found out about this recently, but a few years ago a journalist got really close to fooling a European regulator into approving that netting as transvaginal mesh. Awesome. So you're telling me that the netting that you buy your um, limes and lemons in could have been in somebody's body. (laughs) Well, yeah, if she went the whole gamut. Um, So in 2015, this undercover Dutch journalist working for the National Broadcaster faked a lot of documentation and tried to pass off this netting as being similar to previous surgical measures. Um, And so she went into these meetings with these regulators, which are called EU notified bodies, and she secretly recorded what they were saying. And so these private for-profit companies that are entrusted with the task of giving medical devices this CE mark of approval basically said there was no problem in approving these orange supermarket nets for use in surgery. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. So that's good to know. Um, But doesn't the TGA here in Australia rely pretty heavily on these European regulators' decisions? Yes, so that's what's so scary. In the past, the TGA was quite reliant on these notified bodies, um, as well as the FDA in America, to sign off on implants. We had to because we just didn't have the resources to thoroughly check tens of thousands of devices here. Um, The overseas bodies are like 10 times the size of ours, if not more. Um, But I think now it's tightened up quite a bit, but we'll go into that later. 
And so if these overseas regulators weren't doing their job properly, uh, that's, I guess, a big worry because it means that there could be thousands of Australians right now or even more walking around with these dodgy devices inside them. Probably not fruit netting, but maybe something that was approved in an equally dodgy way. Yeah, so if it was approved in Europe or America, it makes it very likely that it was probably approved here as well. And that's concerning because in the US, the FDA has this process, which is called the 510K process, which means devices that are Me Too devices um, are very easily just let onto the market without any clinical evidence being provided to the regulator. And it's kind of similar in Europe. But the TGA says that their regulations are some of the most stringent in the world. So it's very hard to tell how much more uh, regulation we have in Australia compared to overseas. So this is a kind of worrying example that I came across. Um, So a study published in the BMJ found that um, of around 60 surgical mesh products that which had gained approval in the US, um, they had all been approved on the basis of two early devices that were approved in the 80s and 90s. Um, So that's 60 devices that have been which have got through the regulator on the basis of no uh, new evidence. Just that they had essentially copied the design of two previously successful um, meshes. Sure, but once you get to the 60th iteration, I'm guessing it starts to look a little bit different. Um, And so for about 30 of these meshes, there was a five-year gap between the time that they were approved by the FDA and the date of the first randomized controlled trial being published. So that's five years in which clinicians and patients don't have access to any clinical evidence for these new devices. Okay, so what about here in Australia? So here in Australia, it's kind of a similar story. Uh, The first transvaginal mesh was approved in 1998, but the first randomized controlled trial was only published four years later. Meshes that are similar to this one have been implanted into like 150,000 Australian women. And, I mean, that's why there was the Senate inquiry into this very topic. Um, I believe it wound up last year, but it was horrific. Some of the stories of what had happened to these women who had been implanted with a surgical mesh that had not been tested. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So, as you can imagine, uh, if you don't test these devices, there are going to be problems that crop up that you weren't aware of. Um, And so while this mesh is really successful for a lot of women, there were quite a few women, um, so hundreds, possibly thousands, who were harmed and some quite significantly by these meshes. Um, So the Senate inquiry heard from women who had these devices erode through the vagina and the urinary tract, um, leaving them in excruciating pain um, and completely unable to have a sex life or exercise. Um, Lots of them required extra surgery to remove bits of plastic that became exposed through gaping wounds. Really nasty stuff. Yeah, that's terrible. And it also sounded for a lot of these women like there was no corrective surgery that could be done to help them either, which is even more troubling. Well, the thing with this mesh is that it's meant to strengthen internal tissue that's damaged or weakened by your body growing into the mesh. It's very hard to rip that kind of thing out. And so the question is, is this still happening in Australia? So it's really quite hard to find this out because the TGA's uh, report on the clinical evidence that they use to approve the devices isn't publicly available. These days, uh, companies have to go through a sort of 255-day process and file a clinical evaluation report that lays out some convincing evidence. 
And it usually includes about one to two years of clinical trial evidence to back it up. But again, the public can't access these documents. Have you served them with a freedom of information yet, Felicity? (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you asked, um, because I went to the TGA and asked for the clinical evidence to back up their approval of the Allergen Australia textured breast implants. Um, And the TGA said that I needed to submit a freedom of information request because all of the information around the clinical evidence was commercial incompetence, um, which means it's like a business secret that they don't want to share. Uh, so I've gone and done that now and we'll see what happens. You know, it's going to take a few months. Um, but the reason that was so important is because textured breast implants are used in about 90% of breast implant surgeries in Australia. And they've also now been linked to cancer. Um, so in about one in 1,000 patients or, or less, uh, they develop cancer. And they think this is tied to the fact that they've had these textured breast implants. Um, and so many countries have started to ban these implants um, Australia is in the process of considering a cancellation. Um, but it's quite concerning if it's impossible to go back and figure out why the TGA approved these in the first place. One in 1,000, is that a significant number? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. It's um, With all medical devices, there is a risk of complications, there's a risk of adverse events. The question is, what is the risk? And are the patients willing to take on that risk? And with a lot of these devices, if they don't have access to the clinical evidence or if they haven't been tested properly, it's very hard for patients to make an informed decision about whether to have that implant put in if they don't know what the risk is. So some women would be comfortable with a 1 in 1,000 risk. Some women would say absolutely not. So for some women, it's cosmetic surgery and they might not want to take on the risk of cancer for something that's purely cosmetic. So if these devices are as badly regulated as we seem to think through these investigations, what is the implication? Do many people die from these devices? Yeah, so there was actually an investigation done by about 250 journalists, um, and it was called the Implant Files Investigation, done by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Sounds Um, like a cool club. Yeah, I know, I kind of want to be part of it. (laughs) So they filed a lot of freedom of information requests to lots of countries and governments around the world, and the investigation revealed that there have been 83,000 deaths due to implants globally uh, and 170 in Australia in the last decade. And the injury rate was 1.7 million globally and 8,500 in Australia. Um, and they found so many stories relating to hip implants, vaginal meshes, pacemakers, pain pumps, insulin pumps. Uh, and when you go through some of the findings, it's really quite shocking so it the deep dive investigation told a really disturbing story of patients being surgically implanted with essentially untested devices and the deaths just being swept under the rug and when the companies had to report the deaths they would often mislabel them as being injuries what stands out to me is that these patients who for example uh, get a hip replacement or a pacemaker put in there's not much choice in that so then what their lives may be at risk because of the procedure that they need to have to keep living. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I did actually speak to one regulator who said that that was really the argument for such limited regulation. Um, So his argument was that these people have to have these devices, otherwise they can't live a normal life. And it's really unethical to uh, give them an older device that may have been really, really thoroughly tested because the new devices are so much better. 
Um, it's sort of like, would you want an iPhone from 2015 if you could have one from 2018? I definitely would if I knew that the one from 2015 would work, but the one from 2018 could blow up during the night and kill me. <laughs> well, this is the thing. The idea is that the devices are iterations of each other, so they get tweaked and slightly improved uh, over time, um, and it doesn't make sense, and it's kind of unethical from the regulator's perspective and some of the doctor's perspectives to give people earlier models when they know that those models have problems that have now been improved on. And the argument is that medical devices evolve really quickly, whereas drugs can be tested because they're just one active ingredient or a few active ingredients that don't change over time. Um, and it's just the way that the two uh, types of innovation happen means that one can be regulated different to the other. Hmm. Interesting perspective, <laughs> because then I guess the counter would be, how do we know that there's nothing wrong with it if we don't test it? That's really what it comes down to. Well, to... they try to do it on a risk basis. So the most risky devices require more evidence. But again, it comes back to, are we able to see that evidence? And it looks like we're not really able to get our hands on it. But the other side of the coin is that, yes, they were 80 3,000 deaths around the world from medical devices, but there have been millions and millions of medical devices used and implants put in with those patients living quite happily and an improved quality of life. So you really have to balance it out. Exactly. And it's a little bit like if you go looking for problems in medical devices and medication, you will find it. If you went through every single drug listing on the TGA and counted on paper you couldn't do it on your hands the amount of deaths from drugs you would find thousands yeah absolutely the problem with implants is that they're put into someone that person can't take them out themselves unlike a drug where you can stop taking it um and so sometimes there are problems where a person's had an implant put in and they can't afford to have the surgery to take it out or the company's gone bankrupt or the and there's no insurance money to back it up so it really leaves people in a bind an example of this is women who have had breast implants put in textured breast implants and now are really concerned about their risk of cancer um, and so want to have them taken out but there's no medicare money for that um, so how do they, how are they going to fund it um, it's kind of leaves patients stuck and there's also not a lot of post-market monitoring as well which is the major problem so when issues do happen, they're not always reported back to the regulator. Mm. There's a lot of underreporting. So there's this thing that they say, which is uh, if you have a problem with a car part, it's very easy for that manufacturer to contact every single person who owns that car and tell them to stop driving that car. But with an implant, it's almost impossible to do that because no one knows who was implanted with what, when. Sometimes the, the doctors have retired and patients aren't aware of what they've got inside them. Uh, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> you just look shocked. Yeah, I'm just speechless. Um, and that really just brings me to the question, why is the regulation so different between pharmaceuticals and medical devices? Yeah, so that was really bugging me. So I went and asked a few people. Uh, so firstly, I spoke to Wendy Bonathan, an associate professor of law at Bond University in Queensland. And she says that the regulatory inconsistency is kind of a quirk of history. So originally, medical devices were pretty crude. There were things like bandages, band-aids, syringes, 
surgical scissors, those kinds of things. Um, and mostly external by the sound. Yeah, of external. Um, and so the FDA was much more concerned with the emerging threats to public health from new pesticides and fertilizers and food contamination. Um, and so its decision to regulate medical devices was more of an afterthought. And you can see that in the name. It's the Food and Drug Administration. It's not the Food and Drug and Medical Device Administration in the US. Um, so here's Associate Professor Bonathon talking about that. Devices very much seem to be a fifth wheel bolt on as far as regulation goes. Someone sort of went, oh, it might be a good idea if we started regulating some of these things, but it seems to have evolved almost by accident. I also spoke to Dr. Bruce Bear arnold an assistant professor of law at the University of Canberra, and he says that medical devices haven't received as much regulatory attention as pharmaceuticals because they have historically been quite boring. Um, so here's him talking about that. If we look at, say, devices specifically, my sense is that devices have received less attention uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that they're simply not as sexy. Secondly, they've received less attention, I think, because traditionally they've been, they're less likely to cause major harms. Devices, people think, mm, yeah, look, it's just a bit of metal or plastic, it's really, you know, or, or a syringe, it's just not that, it's not that exciting. I think within the overall regulatory culture, they've received uh, less attention. Uh, they're seen as sort of being um, less risky, certainly less exciting. They tend to, my sense, and I, I, don't, I don't have hard data on this, and I don't, overall, I don't think anyone has hard data on this, but my sense is that they, within the different regulatory agencies, they attract, uh, you know, they don't attract the cream, the, the, the cream of the crop in terms of the regulators. It's good to hear from those experts, Felicity, and I guess there's only one question left. Where does that leave us? So basically, if you're getting a new medical device, uh, you're kind of the first participant in a longitudinal study without actually being included in a study. Um, and that's fine, but I don't think a lot of patients are being made aware of that. Um, I certainly wasn't aware until I went and did this feature. So I think the first thing is that we need more informed consent, and I think patients need to really understand how medical device regulation works right now um, and that it's not terribly strict compared to pharmaceuticals. Uh, and the second thing is post-monitoring needs to happen, so we need to have more registers and tracking of which device is put into which person. And that's what the TGA is doing. Um, so they've proposed a barcoding system where every medical implant is um, numbered and so we can figure out which one's gone where, which will probably help in the long term. And so now we've got quirky history, and this week it's a real treat because Felicity has been researching the most gruesome medical devices in history. It seemed a natural fit with this week's topic. So we've got this one from the 1700s. Doctors used to treat syphilis by sticking a hypodermic syringe up a man's urethra. Um, so starting at the tip of the penis, they would insert the syringe and then inject mercury, which was thought to cure the disease. I just know that everyone is literally holding their legs together in sympathetic pain right now. So the mercury caused uncontrollable salivation, along with ulcers, loose teeth, fragile bones and nerve damage, according to an article in The Lancet. And if the treatment continued long enough, the patient would eventually die from mercury poisoning. Not the best way to go. Uh, no, no, not at all. Um... <laughs> but um, this is actually quite funny that you brought this up. Uh, earlier this week, I was reading this 2006 study from the British Medical Journal, 
And some men in the UK actually still think that medieval devices are still being used for STI screening. Uh, so 18 out of 48 men surveyed in this study had heard of a terrifying umbrella device that is used for scraping uh, out gunk from men's penises, um, usually for syphilis treatment. Um, and they described this penis torture device as a long probe that's inserted and then extended into almost this miniature cocktail umbrella with all these little spikes on it. And then the, the doctor would drag it out uh, um, with all the yuck. pus with it, basically. But the biggest problem about this is that it doesn't exist. Really? That's crazy. Yeah, so even the BMJ was really confused about where this idea of the, this weird, frightening instrument came from. And they wrote in the study, the origins of this myth are obscure, although no doubt readers will enlighten us. Yeah, so I was searching for the origins of this myth and I couldn't find anything on Google or even Reddit. Um, but what I did find was a letter to the BMJ from a retired neurosurgeon who says, the umbrella is no myth. Um, oh God, what happened to him? <laughs> so he says that in 1955, when he was a uh, doing an induction as a seaman and given his clap and pox talk, as they were given at the time, um, that he was shown slides with this device on it. And then he says, as a student, he saw a similar device in person in a workshop in London. So, I mean, maybe they're just... They were around at that time? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, regardless, it really seems like um, the UK has a long way to go in educating men on sexual health um, because as far as I'm aware, apparently all you need for an STI check is a little urine test. Um, That's if you haven't got any symptoms. But if you've got symptoms, it's just a tiny little swab uh, that's put a short distance into the urethra and then it's pretty painless. And on that lovely note of talking about male urethras, uh, let's talk about what next episode is going to be about. So I'm working on a feature at the moment about sexual dysfunction uh, for patients with rheumatic disease. It's often overlooked. A lot of doctors maybe don't want to talk about it or don't know how to talk about it. And unfortunately, patients are suffering in silence because they seem to think that Healthcare professionals will always think that their pain and disease comes first when really they just want to live a normal life and have partners like everyone else. Intriguing. Well, I can't wait to talk to you about that one, Francine. Catch you next time. <laughs>